Lights, and you're listening to P.S. Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder, and welcome to another installment of P.F.'s third favorite band, question mark. Uh, we are on our fifth installment now, and uh, this week's candidate, boy, I tell you, if you would ask me this question back in the 80s, we'd been asking for P.F.'s fourth favorite band, because these guys solidly would have been in the top three. Uh, it's Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode, if you're uh, of the uneducated in the new wave. Um, but of course, we're going to start off with songs by my two favorite bands, the Beach Boys and Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. We'll start with the Beach Boys. Uh, we've been playing some early Beach Boys uh, in the in the previous episodes. We're now, of course, up to the, um, I would say, the landmark album, the, the Pet Sounds album. I have a lot of opinions about Pet Sounds. First of all, Pet Sounds is probably the most maligned greatest album ever. If you look at the list of all the great albums of, in the rock and roll era, the one that takes the most heat. I mean, people love it and think it's great, but of, of the heat factor on this album is pretty high. I think it's probably the least popular great album of all time because a lot of people hate it. Most people love it. A lot of people hate it. And I have no idea why. Um, like I said, we uh, Steve Lukather, who's the guitar player for Toto, amongst others, was on my friend Pat Francis's podcast. I noticed a couple of weeks after him being on the uh, on the program, let me shut that off for you. Uh, being on the program, he tweeted out randomly that nothing. He wasn't on talking about the Beach Boys on Pat's show, but he just randomly tweeted out that All Summer Long is a better Beach Boys album than Pet Sounds because it's simply more accessible to people. And I disagree with that because one there are some turkeys on all summer long and it's just not as sophisticated even as a non-musician i can appreciate the complexity of pet sounds so i think it's kind of weird for a guy who's an actual super talented musician to have that opinion but as i said then i i respect his opinion because he's an actual musician and i'm not so but anyway pet sounds of course um up until this point uh, we had this discussion last week and uh, even after uh pet sounds and it, the thing has always been the beach was whether well, they're a vocal group and even mike love says they really were a vocal group but I, that's really not true because, again, unlike a lot of bands in the 60s up to this point, the Beach Boys were playing all their own instruments on their albums with very little outside help. Now, on Pet Sounds, they got outside help for two reasons. One, uh, the rest of the Beach Boys are touring all over the country uh, to keep money flowing into the accounts. And secondly, uh, Brian is coming up with some really complex stuff that would, would be beyond the capabilities of the Beach Boys, not only musically, but just numerically. There just aren't enough of them to play all the stuff that needs to be played for Pet Sounds. For those two reasons, uh, Brian hires most of the Wrecking Crew, or all of the Wrecking Crew, plus more people to help out uh, with Pet Sounds. And there's some uh, controversy with this in that uh, commercially Pet Sounds does not do very well. Critically, it does very well. It produces a couple of top 10 hits, including the one we're going to play right now. Uh, Probably one of their best songs ever. Produces another great song that does not chart because I believe it ends up as a B-side, God Only Knows. They do a cover of a uh, traditional folk song, Sloop John B., which is fantastic. Maybe we'll play that one next week. We may stick with this album for a couple of weeks. But anyway, the one final thought I want to give you on Pet Sounds is I'm not keen on, uh, what's the Smashing Pumpkins, um, but Billy Corgan, their lead singer one time, uh, was I saw him interviewed, and he said people... Uh, say that uh, you know a lot. You know, Brian Wilson is a genius. Well, people only say he's a genius because he he made Pet Sounds. To which Billy Corgan says, "What else do you have to do?" And he's exactly right. Brian Wilson could have done nothing after this, and he'd still be a genius. But uh, he but he did, and we're going to discuss that in what we call the post surf Beach Boys. Post surf Beach Boys, technically, well, I would say is actually Pet Sounds and beyond. I kind of think it's 
after pet sounds because it's it's kind of a little overlap there's still kind of there's no like surfing and girls things on here particularly they're like the older stuff but i think this is kind of the crossing point so what i consider to be post-surf beach boys properly is uh the next album after this smile which isn't great we'll get to that and then there's a lot of good stuff after pet sounds is what i'm gonna tell you so anyway, this is one of my favorite songs ever. was debating on whether I should play you just the uh, vocal version, which comes on the deluxe edition of Pet Sounds, or should I play you the full version? I decided to go with the full version. And uh, boy, if you want to get some insight into the album, uh, I recommend a, the, one of my favorite music biographies now is Love and Mercy. Uh, that's the one where uh, Paul Dano plays young Brian Wilson and John Cusack plays older Brian Wilson, and I watch it all the time. And they do a lot of uh, looking at the making of Pet Sound, which I believe is accurate. No one has told me that it is inaccurate. Uh, and most of the movie as a whole is very, very accurate. There are only a few things where some people involved have said, uh, no, that's not exactly what happened. And I think they probably had to move some things around and contract them some things just to fit it into a two-hour space, which happens in music biographies. So no one's mad about it, but that's just, you know, you just know that going in. But anyway, I spend a lot of time on the recording of Pet Sounds, and it's, it's just fascinating. Anyway, here is uh, one of my favorite Beach Boy... Uh, so here is one of my favorite Beach Boy songs of all time. Here is Wouldn't It Be Nice. Be Nice by the Beach Boys comes from the Pet Sounds album. Again, the album doesn't do really well commercially. Uh, we have the controversy, Mike Love, don't F with the formula. Oh, and by the way, I have another thing I was going to point out about this, and about this song, as a matter of fact. Uh, a guy we need to get on the podcast, by the way, who is also a comedian, because we usually interview comedians, is, uh, is a friend of my friend Pat's, and uh, he was on the Pat's show one day. They were talking about something it wasn't to do directly with the beach boys but the beach boys came up and um, mike love gets a songwriting credit on this song brian wrote most of the album with a guy named terry asher who I had a chance to interview a couple of years ago again simply because the rest of the band was out of town and wasn't really able to uh, help in the creative process of pet sounds beyond just coming in to do the vocals at the very end but anyway um my, my friend pat's friend mike uh is is on about oh well Mike Love got a songwriting credit because he uh, came up with a good night baby uh, sleep tight baby party you get a songwriting credit for that and I'm like uh, yeah you do you wrote part of the song and in fact even on Pat show they had a discussion with um, 
I think it was Elliot Easton from the cars and he was on and they asked him, they said, hey, you know, Rick Ocasek seems to get like all the writing credit. I mean, didn't you guys, you guys must have contributed other stuff. He didn't do it all on his own. And he was kind of like, Elliot's kind of like, well, yeah, just kind of the way it went. Um, and so a lot of bands are like that. I understand Talking Heads the same way. David Byrne, yes, the lion's share of the creative, but those other three folks contributed quite a bit, but we're not, oh, it's, uh, The Police, that's another one. Uh, Andy Summers wrote the guitar lick for every breath you take and completely locked out of it, doesn't get credit for it. And it's one of the most used guitar licks and sampling in the history of the planet. But I digress. Anyway, uh, so we have Denote F with the formula thing. That is going to affect things down the road. We'll get to that in a future episode. We come up to OMD. We're going to stick with the Architecture and Morality album, uh, considered by many to be their best album, both OMD fans and uh, lay people. Now, this is, there's two Joan of Arcs on this album. How fun. One is about actual Joan of Arc. The other is about a woman that's sort of, uh, in, uh, this song is inspired by her, her spirit of Joan of Arc, if you will. So I'm going to play you actual Joan of Arc. Uh, this song, they took on top of the pops uh, arrogantly. I say so arrogantly because Andy McCluskey says, you know, this, they've had, I think, at least three top ten hits by this point. Messages, I think, was top ten. A souvenir for sure was, went to three, and Only Gay went to eight. So they have at least three top tens under their belt. Um, and so they're feeling pretty good about, you know, people accepting them. And Andy McCluskey's like, we took this song on top of the pops and played it, the first 30 minutes of which is noise, so which you're, you're hearing right now under me. And then uh, then it becomes a, a proper song. Charted in Canada, went to number nine there, weirdly, did not chart in America. Of course, that's not for another couple of years they have hits here, but uh, boy, it's, a, it's another good one. Here's Joan of Arc by Custer Maneuvers in the Dark. by OMD. Like I said, there's another Joan of Arc on this. It's uh, called Joan of Arc and then it's subtitled Made of Orleans. And they uh, released both of those back to back. I think they both go top 10 in Britain. Andy wanted to keep them both called Joan of Arc. He thought that would be hilarious. And Virgin Records said, well, no, you can't do that because that'll confuse people. And then they were going to release a fourth single from the album. They decided not to. Uh, we discussed that last week. Didn't want to be overexposed. And he looked in retrospect and said, wow, was I a dumb 20-year-old kid back then. So we come up to Depeche Mode. Well, they fit into this thing in a strange way. Depeche Mode start off in Basildon. It's a, a suburb east of London, if you're familiar. And they start off as a traditional uh, guitar band. And the problem is, uh, a couple problems. First of all, they are unremarkable as a guitar band. 
and their kind of leader of the, at this point, Vince Clark, is um, you know looking for something different. He is uh, in a club one night and he hears "Electricity" by OMD, among other songs, and he's like, "Wow, that's pretty cool. They're doing this all with uh, these newfangled keyboard things." So he goes to the other guys and says, we should do this. And the other advantage to it is, is that they can rehearse anytime, anywhere they want because they can wear headphones when they're playing keyboards, which they can't do with their guitars. So that's handy. And uh, another thing that's also interesting to note at this point is um, keyboards are becoming fairly cheap at this point. Oddly, they are not for OMD when the OMD is starting out in 1979. They have to uh, get one from Andy McCluskey's mom's catalog. It's a, a K's, I believe, is the department store. They get this monophonic synth from uh, K's, and they have to make weekly payments before they finally get it in the mail. And anyway, but I mean, overall, keyboards are kind of cheap, but the problem is that they are uh, monophonic, and if you're a musician or not, I'm just a pretend musician, but basically you can't play chords on a monophonic uh, keyboard. You can only play one at a time. So this becomes also important for the Depeche Mode uh, development story here. They um, they muck about for a little bit. They go all keyboards. They try to get uh, someone interested in them. Finally, they get a guy named Daniel Miller interested. He works in a record store and is getting a, a label named Mute off the ground. Uh, he signs them to his label. He works with them and produces their, uh, their record. They get on a compilation called Some Bizarre. They have a song called Photographic that is on there, which will, and an updated version appears on their debut album. But then they um, release a couple of singles. I believe this is the third single overall, and it's probably the most famous of their early works. It's called Just Can't Get Enough. It's been covered by a lot of people, and it's been used in adverts a lot lately as well. And uh, oddly, when they released this in the United States on the album Speak and Spell, uh, the record label thinks they're doing everybody a favor and released the 12-inch mix, but the 12-inch mix starts off just with the drum pattern and then goes into the secondary keyboard part. It does not have the opening hook that you're going to hear in a second, which is one of the best new wave uh, synth pop hooks ever. And th that's the whole song, really. The whole song goes from there. So anyway, this is uh, Just Can't Get Enough from Depeche Mode's debut album, Speak and Spell. Just Can't Get Enough, still a cracking tune 
Well, uh, all goes well. This goes, they get three top ten hits out of this uh, album, I believe, um, including this song here. And uh, the thing, though, is that Vince Clark, kind of the control freak, he's still the leader of the band. He decides he'd rather just do this all himself. He's like, heck, I can do this. So initially, he decides to just work with different people, different singers, and uh, and a producer. And uh, he's going to call this band The Assembly originally. And... Um, Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He decides to, uh, he needs a singer, and he recruits a, a gal named Allison Moyer, and they form a group called uh, Yazoo, just Yaz to us in the States. And um, they uh, work well together, but basically they function as kind of two separate pieces of the same band, basically, and they only last for two albums. But anyway, um, Vince leaves, and he goes off to form this other band. Uh, Vince will become important later in the episode. Uh, so the other three dudes are like, what are we going to do now? Well, fortunately, Martin Gore uh, has been writing some songs. He has two songs on the first album. The rest are all Vince uh, compositions. And he says, well, I've got some songs. We can we can still do this. So they released an album called A Broken Frame as a trio. And we're going to play a song from it. This is not one of the singles. This is a song called A Photograph of You. And what's different about Martin Gore's songs is even when they're, they seem kind of fluffy and frilly, there's still a little more emotional content to them where I think Vince's stuff tended to be a little more poetic and abstract, if you will. The other big difference here, and weirdly, is that even though this album was produced by Daniel Miller, who produces the first album, it sounds a lot muddier than both Depeche Mode's first album and then later Yazoo's albums that Daniel Miller will also produce. There's a much crisper, cleaner sound to the stuff Vince is doing. Uh, there's a little muddier uh, sound to a broken frame, which is almost like OMD of the time. So you'll see what I mean here, but this is a, a nice tune called A Photograph of You. Photograph of You from Depeche Mode's second album, A Broken Frame. They are a trio not for long. They hire a guy named Alan Wilder to fill in, uh, not really fill in, but to kind of do some more things that they are looking to do uh, in terms of ex expanding their sound. He appears on a single following this album called Get the Balance Right, and then he properly appears on the uh, next album, Construction Time Again. Construction Time Again is different uh, because the boys discover sampling. And not sampling like you boys and girls know today, where they just take a piece of a record. No, they take little sounds like this. They dang, clang things. They strum a guitar, and they sample that into the keyboard. Then the keyboard can play it. And they do all kinds of really cool stuff. Unfortunately, I think of their first bunch of albums, this is the weakest album that produces, I think, their best song, which we're going to hear in a second. And uh, it's really strange, but yeah, it's uh, and they even admitted that, that they spent more time probably on the technology than they did on the songs. But they did get one proper banger out of it. 
And which brings me to another point. I kind of come to the Depeche Mode party late, uh, relatively speaking. I first heard Depeche Mode on the soundtrack for uh, A Summer of Love, whatever. The one had the big Chicago song on it. it it's got... Uh, it takes place in Greece, and the guy meets up with a girl, and then he meets another girl. Anyway, they're on the soundtrack, and you just can't get enough for like a microsecond. And I'm just like, oh, that's pretty cool. And, and at the time, Depeche Mode is suffering the same thing that OMD are suffering. MTV is desperate for content, but they're still not playing a lot of bands, including OMD and Depeche Mode at this point. So I don't hear Depeche Mode till I get to college in the fall of 1984, properly. Driving around campus, and I hear this. everything counts. That's the 12-inch, by the way, gang. Um, I consider this to be the actual um, standard version of Everything Counts, while the one on the album, which is four minutes, I consider that to be like a radio edit, even though in reality it's the other way around. It's the, the real song is the four-minute one, and this is an expanded 12-inch, but I know this one is the actual, because I heard this for a long... Oop. Now, there goes some more drilling here. They're doing our bathroom upstairs, so I'm going to cut it off here. This is part one of... Um, I'm going to try and squeeze this in here. So that's everything counts uh, in larger amounts. Uh, and I just goes from there. I just become, I go backwards through the catalog and all that fun stuff. Um, the album this comes from, Some Great Award. Oh, no, that's the following album, is Some Great Award. There's a war up to now. Uh, produces People Are People, their first top 40 hit in the U.S. Uh, people Are People goes to 13. But this is a song that I really enjoy. Not a single. It's called It Doesn't Matter. I am happy. 
Matter still one of my favorite songs uh, to this day. Even it's one of the things I go back. I'm like, oh, I forgot how much I like that song. So things are going swimmingly for Depeche Mode. They've got a top 20 hit. People are starting to know who they are, and they release an album in 1986 called Black Celebration. A little controversy here is that Black Celebration in the United Kingdom uh, does not have this last song on it. The song is a B-side to the first single from the album, Stripped. It does not appear on the original UK release. Uh, Warner Brothers Records here, well, Sire, actually, tacks this on, much to the dismay of the band, who are very upset by this, but it's a banger, man. This is a great tune. I've got another 12-inch version for you. This is the uh, U.S. remix of it. It's just a great, well-constructed song. Still, even though they can play chords at this point, nothing plays a chord. Uh, the as I And I read about this, so I'm smarter, not as smart as I sound on this, but the whole structures of the song, the chord changes are all um, suggested by the bass, the vocal, and the relation to all the different riffs uh, in relation to each other on top of each other, if that makes any sense. And this is a good example. This is, uh, but not tonight, the US 12 inch. Again, not on the Black Celebration released in the UK, but weirdly, when they release it on CD, they have no problem sticking that on there with a bunch of other tunes. So it was all for naught. Uh, they didn't start playing this live in concert because they were so mad about it for years and years. Now they finally do play it in concert. And uh, 
Black Celebration does well uh, as in alternative circuits. Doesn't produce, uh, I don't think produces any top hits, at least in the United States. Uh, People are People remains their only top 40 hit at this time. And then they release Music for the Masses, uh, another good album. This actually starts them on a big trajectory of playing uh, huge, huger and huger venues, as it were. Uh, this is the first single from the album, and still one of my, probably my favorite from the album, and one of my favorites uh, still of theirs. This is Strange Love. by Depeche Mode from Music for the Masses, this tour uh, becomes known as the Concert for the Masses. It will result in a concert film called 101, or Custer Moon Wish in the Dark, are the opening act for most of this tour in the United States. They play the Rose Bowl, which is unheard of for a band that's only had one top 40 hit, and again, only got to 13, but they sell out the Rose Bowl. Uh, they have help. Uh, a band called Wire is the opening, opening act. Then Thomas Dolby comes out for half an hour. Uh, another brilliant guy, by the way. Do check him out. And then OMD gets to play instead of a uh, 35 to 40 minute set. They get to play for almost an hour. And then Depeche Mode comes out. And Xander McCluskey told me, a bit of a galling experience. They went back to England absolutely penniless. We'll talk more about that uh, in later episodes. And uh, those guys made enough to retire, meaning Depeche Mode. So... Um, so let me see, that's, uh, Strange Love, uh, and, oh, I should also point out, speaking of the 101 tour, they re-release Everything Counts, uh, the live version, and Everything Counts should always be their final song. Some bands, once you find your closing song, you stick with it. They have since dropped it, they dropped it entirely from their set for a long time, and now it's back in their set, but it's in the middle, and that's just completely wrong. Everything Counts should always be Depeche Mode's final song. It's just a very moving, uh, you have to look it up, just YouTube, you can YouTube just that part of the concert, it's fantastic. All right, so um, that's kind of where I'm going to end the Depeche, well, I usually play six songs, I'm going to play seven. I'm not going to play anything from the big, huge Violator album, because if you know Depeche Mode, you know the two big hits, Enjoy the Silence and Personal Jesus, they're top ten hits, and I think Enjoy the Silence gets number one, as a matter of fact, and weirdly, at a time when uh, synth bands are going out of fashion, this is 1990 or so, they have a number one album with Violator, even though the Seattle grunge movement is coming in the manchester thing is taking place so uh, they still managed to conquer all that but um the song after it is uh, i mean the album after it songs of faith and devotion also a pretty good album but uh alan wilder leaves at that point and to me that's where my fandom seems to end and he didn't write he only wrote a few songs um and none of them were hits he wrote a couple good tunes for the band though but basically what his job was he was he construct he was the musical architect i guess of the whole thing and boy when he left you could really tell even though martin was still writing some good songs i don't think they were being realized as well as they 
could have been realized. And again, excuse the drilling. How appropriate we're hearing the drilling noises. Like It's like a Depeche Mode record in here. Should, they should probably have sampled that drill. I think they did on some of their songs. Anyway, um, I'm going to play one more song. It's from an album that was released in the 2000s, and it's the only song that sounds like what they used to sound like, and this is a song called Precious. from Depeche Mode. Had a guy on the show, um, gosh, years ago. Caleb Bacon is his name. He's a, I believe he's a writer out in Los Angeles, and um, he used to host a podcast called Man School. He doesn't do that anymore, but I found he was a Depeche Mode fan, so I had him on to discuss his favorite band, and weirdly, he became a Depeche Mode fan after Alan Wilder left, which is just crazy to me. Go back and listen to that episode, just like a PS tape recorder, Caleb Bacon, and it should pop up. So that's it, Depeche Mode. I mean, you can make a good case, because I liked them for a long time, but the problem is, is that after 1993, 4, it, no, no, I like one song, one song, and they've released three or four albums since then. So I think that kind of like hamstrings them, but then do I go with the first couple albums, which I, which I love? Don't have the same effect for them that I used to, but I can still put them on and be like, oh, yeah, I still really do like this. And uh, while this drilling wraps up upstairs, I'm going to bring you to the uh, Honorable Mention Band, which is Erasure. After Yazoo, they last two albums, Vince Clark and uh, Alison Moy part ways. Vince goes to form the Assembly with his uh, Eric Radcliffe, the, uh, their engineer. They're going to have different lead singers on every song. That doesn't work out. They only release one song called Never Never with Fergal Sharky off of Undertones. Good tune. Check it out. But uh, he puts an ad in the paper looking for another singer, finds Andy Bell, and people think, oh, this will last about as long as all the other things did. And they've been together ever since. They're still technically a band. They, in fact, they released an album just uh, a couple months ago, Erasure. And I, it took a, me a long time to figure out which song I was going to play. I love the Wonderland LP. It is, uh, it is really good. Uh, great debut. I like it top to bottom. But I like this song. I think this is probably the best song uh, of theirs overall. It still goes through my head. It's called A Little Respect. It went to 13 here in the U.S. So if you've heard an Erasure song, you've heard Chains of Love or A Little Respect, which came from uh, the album this comes from, which I believe was The Innocents. And anyway, this is A Little Respect from Erasure, our honorable mention band on PF's tape recorder. PF's third favorite band, question mark. Back to 
And there you have it, Erasure. Uh, the song of the week uh, doesn't fit in much with these guys. I guess it might in, in a little way, but um, anyway, uh, that's uh, Erasure Honorable Mention, Depeche Mode, possibly PF's third favorite band. We'll find out, I guess, sometime soon. Uh, sounds like the drilling is done upstairs, so I'll quickly tell you that our song of the week is from Little Mix. It's called Sweet Harmony. This may be a remix. I know I downloaded this a couple of months ago. I was going to play it a song of the week. Didn't. I think it got re-released uh, and remixed in Britain. I've been playing it a lot on Radio 1. I like me some Little Mix, which is unusual for a 54-year-old man. But uh, I do. Uh, again, I don't like a lot of this kind of stuff, like, you know, back to back to back. But if you, I need a, a girl, a pop uh, pop group from Britain, uh, female vocals, I'm going to Little Mix. And, uh, and this are new in this case. This is Sweet Harmony. It's our song of the week on PS Tape Recorder. So long and thanks for listening. <laughs> In the whole other life, there was this boy that I knew He made me feel like a woman We were young and silly fools Anyway, he was in the band Roll up songs about me I wasn't crazy about the words But the melodies were sweet When someone like do 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 Every time we go dancing, I see his straying eyes Gave him too many chances, pushed my keys too many times Anyway, he started to number, I'll be on my way to leave But I stopped in my tracks when I heard this melody Anyway, like do 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 do